Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a really interesting founder. I think that her story is is really remarkable. I mean, she's she's been through every single position, every single story, every single phase that you could that you could think of. And we're gonna be learning a lot about apparel, about accessories for women, uh, and and also all these fashion segments. So I guess without further ado, let me welcome to the show Jill Layfield. Welcome today. Hi, thank you for having me. So, originally born in San Jose, California. How was life there? <laughs> it was, uh, I think, uh, in, in hindsight, the perfect place to be born um, and come back to eventually because it was really the launch pad of an amazing career. I never would have thought I was going to work in, you know, technology companies. Um, but I think being immersed in that, you know, sort of environment in San Jose uh, made it possible. Got it. And obviously you, you moved quite a bit while, while, uh, you know, growing up, right? That's right. So yeah, I was born in San Jose, uh, but we spent seven years in Austin, Texas, my family, um, from let's see, like fourth grade to about a sophomore in high school. And Austin is this amazing, um, place to grow up as well as the Bay area. So I count myself pretty lucky, but we moved back to the Bay area. I went to high school in Cupertino at Monta Vista, and then eventually went to went on to Santa Clara University. Very cool. And obviously, you studied there communications and journalism. And you know, I, I want to ask you here, like, how how important would you say that that perhaps what you've learned about storytelling has helped you to really you know develop yourself as a professional and obviously now as a as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I. You know, I still, and I'm, you know, 45 years old, have these nightmares that I didn't finish college because I was very, very focused when I was in college on getting through it as fast as possible and getting to be uh, self-sufficient and earning money. And so um, I, you know, sort of sped through it and um, I think I did okay, but I didn't do my best work. <laughs> Um, and, and really, as I think about what I got from school, uh, it hasn't been nearly as important as sort of the 
on the ground learnings that I've had at every company I've been at. Um, and I actually wish I could go back to college <laughs> because I think storytelling, <laughs> to your point, is so important. Right. And, you know, I like to say that often when people ask me for advice, I, I say, you know, one of the lost arts is um, being a great writer. Um, everybody's like so fast with their communication and it's all about the tweet or the quick Instagram um, you know, comment, but actually whether it's storytelling to your customers or still storytelling to your board or storytelling to your employees, like being able to communicate your ideas is the most important thing. And I think if you can write that out in a narrative format, um, it's more powerful than PowerPoint because it requires you to flush out your ideas more deeply. And so I kind of wish I could go back to college and, you know, really like focus on that journalism degree and, <laughs> and improve my writing skills. Cause it's something that only now I feel like I'm really getting much better at. Um, and it's that sort of writing that I think leads to the, you know, compelling storytelling. Got it. And obviously you were, you were taking, you know, um, a learning or two while you were in college because you actually were on the side uh, to make some money. You were you were a waitress uh, at a at a restaurant <laughs> there, and you uh, came across this uh, group of individuals from this company Eight by Eight, and you know obviously you you really put those communication skills to work because a good <laughs> result came out of that. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I it's I believe the restaurant's still in Santa Clara. It's called Burke's, and it's. Um, and it's sort of well-known for having a lot of power lunches and after-work cocktails um, with people in the sort of tech community in the Santa Clara area. And it's so close to Santa Clara University. So, uh, yeah, to pay for college, I was working um, there in the evenings, and a team from 8 by 8 would come in, um, and I would tell them about what I was doing in school. And, you know, I was, you know, I think, thankfully, pretty outgoing and they said, look, we like you. Why don't you come do an internship at 8x8? Eight eight? And I'm, I, the, the company's evolved since, you know, this was many, many, many years ago, but they were doing voiceover IP um, technology then. And it was a very, it's a very tech heavy company. I really had no idea what they were doing at the time, but I was like, somebody's offering me an internship in Silicon Valley and I should say yes. So I went to work for them and as an intern, and then I guess I did an okay job and they offered me a full-time position out of college. And that was really going back to your question about the, you know, maybe advantages of growing up in, in the Bay area, that, that was, um, that was one of those big moments in my life. And I think had I been anywhere else, you know, in the, the world, I may not have had that opportunity to, you know, start a career in technology. Like I was able to, you know, working at Burt's and meeting the team from eight by eight. That's amazing. And, you know, obviously, uh, after this, one of your bosses went to InfoGear, then InfoGear got acquired by Cisco. Uh, and at this point, there's a pivotal moment for you, which is when you meet Jim Clark. So uh, what happened there? Yeah, so it was uh, sort of very random that I met Jim through various social circles and um became a friend of his. And in many ways, he became a mentor of mine. I still keep in touch with Jim. And Jim said, you know, you're a smart, young, high potential woman. And I think you should, you know, come to this new company that I'm a part of called Shutterfly. And again, I, you know, of course now, like 
digital photo finishing is like ubiquitous and I know what it is now, but back then I was like, okay, digital photo finishing. Like, I don't know what that is, but similar to the eight by eight experience, I was like, of course I'll go to work there. Um, it was too good of an opportunity. If Jim, you know, sort of says you should do this, then you do it. And so I met the team there and thankfully they gave me an opportunity and I joined the marketing organization. Um, it was pretty small when I joined the company, you know, like maybe 50 people. Um, and I started in online marketing there. So this was where I really learned, you know, what, um, consumer internet was all about and sort of the world of online marketing. And I did online marketing and, um, business development for them for about five years. That's pretty cool. And obviously for the folks that are listening that they don't know who Jim Clark is, I mean, Netscape, Silicon Graphics, you name it. So one of the, um, Big, big uh, movers and shakers uh, there. So, so I guess, uh, you know, you were at Shutterfly for a bit, you know, incredible experience, but obviously, you know, you get married and, uh, you know, getting married and figuring out, you know, like the, the family picture, you decided to go to Park City, Utah. What a, what a different route. So, <laughs> so, so, Jill, tell us about this, this, this transition. So my, my husband, uh, was a big rock climber and I fell in love with climbing when we met. And after being at Shutterfly for five years, I was, I sort of had the itch to do something different. And I found on Craigslist this is like the best story I found on Craigslist, um, a listing for a, like an online marketing manager. I think just, it was a job description for a small e-commerce company headquartered in Park City, Utah. And I'm thinking to myself, well, man, there are not that many e-commerce companies headquartered in ski resorts. So <laughs> I fired off an email and I was, it was, it was ridiculous in hindsight. It was like, hi, I can do this job and I like to climb, you know, <laughs> would love to talk. <laughs> and um, one thing led to another. I met the two founders of Backcountry. Jim Hall and John Brzee and Dustin Robertson at the time, the CMO. And they said, you're exactly what we're looking for. You should move to Park City. So I picked up, moved with my husband to Park City, Utah, and started there responsible for driving all of the traffic to the website and all of the customer marketing uh, around repeat uh, sort of customer marketing. And here you really get to see the... Um the dynamics, you know, inside and out of the different roles, because you go from customer marketing to product management to COO, and then all the way to president and CEO. What a what a ride! No, during these eleven years there. <laughs> yeah, um, the the product role was really, I think, you know, look, a piece of advice that I give uh, another one is. You know, you, you have to be fearless and you have to go for things. And at Backcountry, um, a moment for me, I think that embodies that was when I had gone to the founders and said, look, you know, we're driving all this traffic to the website. We're growing fast, but it's not converting the way we expect. We need to build a product management function. It was something I'd seen at Shutterfly done very well. I said, you know, we need we need to focus on the user experience and we need to convert more of that traffic. And we tried to find somebody to hire and we couldn't. And then the founders were like, well, why don't you do it? I'm like, because oh, I have no idea how to do it. But I got actually got a mentor, Marty Kagan from Silicon Valley Product Group. And I said, hey, can you help me figure this out? And that was like a big moment because I, to your point, I understood like the, uh, how to drive traffic and acquire customers and retain them. But then I learned, you know, the in and outs of using data and technology to build a highly differentiated, high converting user experience. Um, and that set me up then for, 
uh, Jim and John to promote me to chief operating officer. And I was really only in the role of COO for six months when they went to Liberty Media, who had, had acquired us and said, we'd like to step down and have Jill become CEO. I was, I think, 36 years old. And, you know, <laughs> it was like quite, quite the jump um, in a few short years. Um, but again, one of those moments in my career, where I was like, okay, well, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to have to figure it out because this is not an opportunity you turn down. Yeah. And obviously, this is one of those pivotal moments because during challenging uh, initiatives or whatever we have in front of us is where, where it really mm. shapes us, you know, as it could be professionals, entrepreneurs, or even, or even human beings. And I know that for you, this, um, this, is, this, this particular transition, it was a little bit tough because uh, there was some restructuring yeah. and changes that you needed to apply. So, so tell us about this. Yeah, so the first year was incredibly good. Um, and it was actually quite funny because when they told me I was going to be made CEO, I just found out I was pregnant with my second child. So I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to have a baby. Um, so, you know, the good news is, is that year, like the, the business did great. I had my daughter and, I, you know, everything was sort of clicking. But that year uh, was quickly followed by, you know, the toughest period that we had at Backcountry. And there were a couple things at play. One was we had the like warmest and driest record at the time, uh, winter, the warmest and driest winter and on record in the U.S. Um, and, you know, that's tough for a business that is very winter weather dependent. But I think more importantly was um, at the same time of that happening, Backcountry had benefited from just bringing an industry online. So bringing highly technical outdoor gear in soft goods and hard goods and bringing that business online by 20, by 2012, you know, REI had figured out online, Amazon was pushing into outdoor and all the brands themselves had started being more aggressive with their direct businesses. So they built e-commerce um, expertise. And so we were now, you know, not just bringing an industry online and riding that wave, but we were like, competing with um, the brands we sold, with Amazon, with REI. So we had competition from everywhere. And I think, you know, as a retailer, the one thing you often don't have is differentiation through selection because you're selling something that the customer can likely get in other places. And so we had, I mean, it was, I had dark days. <laughs> in 2012 and 2013, I was, you know, I read, I'll never forget reading um, Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And he talks about like night sweats, and, like, I don't know, something. And I, I like wept when I read his book because I was, you know, an, a young, inexperienced CEO and I was like, oh my God, why are we not growing like we should anymore? Why is our margin being compressed? And so I had to take a big step back and say, okay, how are we going to build real value for the customer uh, in a product category where, you know, she or he can get, you know, this product in many different places. And so I revamped the management team. Um, I completely changed our business strategy and, um, you know, there were times I remember going out to Liberty and meeting with the team there and just thinking, okay, I'm flying out there to get, you know, I'm going to get fired, right? Because business was not good. And then them sort of saying, okay, we hear what you want to do. We believe in it. Now go do it. And then flying back to Park City and like crying on the plane thinking, ah, I don't think I can really do this. I'd sold this dream. 
Um, but you know, we, we, we got it done. Um, but it was, um, I'm just thankful I had the opportunity to try and get through it and, and get through it. Because how, how big was the company Jill at this time where, you know, you need to really take a, a deep look from top to bottom and, and really start to, to making, you know, some, some really tough, tough calls. It was about 250 million. So when I joined in 2004, it was 20 million. So at this point it's about 250 million. This is like 2012. And how many, how many employees? At that stage, probably 500, 600-ish. Wow. Uh, 36. What a, <laughs> what an incredible challenge, eh, Jill. And, and I guess when you're like from that position, uh, from like the 30,000 view perspective, how do you go from like top to bottom to really understand where are the holes and how you go about covering them? Yeah. So for, for me, it came down to differentiation and team. Uh, so the first question sort of was, how are we going to differentiate? Um, and sort of what really matters to the customer? What can we uniquely own? Um, and for us, that was returning to the roots of, you know, sort of what we called expert gearhead connections. So in a world where Amazon was winning through, you know, convenience and price and selection and not so much focused on, they were focused on service, but from a, uh, I think a selection and delivery perspective, we instead then focused on service from a, you know, sort of a personal one-to-one perspective. And so, you know, there was, we sort of elevated the face of our gearheads, uh, which were the individuals that, you know, were on chat and phone and an email and built a one-to-one sort of relationship between our customers and our gearheads and really emphasize this sort of, uh, you know, handholding and um, elevated level of service that was backed by humans and highly personalized. Um, so that was one, you know, sort of part of the strategy. And so then that drove, okay, well, what sort of team do you have to build to deliver that? And then the second was, you know, as much as we couldn't really differentiate through selection in our core categories, there were lots of um, sort of niche outdoor brands that, um, going back to your point on storytelling earlier, uh, you know, wanted to have their stories told and uh, were more unique in sort of what they offered. And so we sort of started incubating and launching um, new brands. Uh, and then, And then I think finally, you know, thinking through, um, what the next level of the, the customer experience was and sort of how do you bring those new product stories to life and this one-to-one expert um, service to life in a digital experience? Because at the end of the day, when you're a retailer, you sell the product you sell, if it's not product you're making, isn't differentiated, but the service and the experience is. That's really what your product becomes. And so, you know, that meant a complete overhaul of our technology team, our digital product team, uh, marketing and merchandising. Uh, and I went through a pretty big shift strategically, but also the entire management team who then ended up staying with me the entire time I was CEO and ultimately being with me when we sold the business. That's amazing. And obviously that was a five-year phase for you. Uh, and especially the, probably the last, the last piece of that, maybe like the last year or so was really around the, um, the packaging and the positioning for the M&A process. So, so how was that process? And at what point, you know, it, the decision is taken of, hey, let's 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 go out and seek an acquisition here. So, at the end of 2014, Liberty Media, who'd uh, acquired that country in, oh gosh, I have to think, 2007, 2008, said, you know, we're 
we're ready to think about what's next for backcountry. And I also had said, you know, I, we're ready as a management team to have an exit here. And so the timing worked for Liberty and for the management team to think about, you know, uh, selling the business. Um, so we kicked off a process with a bank who we, Guggenheim represented us. And, but I, it's kind of a funny story here. Um, but somebody on my team had come to me and said, you are going to hate bankers looking at this business because they are going to take everything that you feel is very you know, strategic and thoughtful and important to back and they're going to reduce it down to like, you know, sort of this, this pitch that feels almost like lacks, I guess, some of the emotion that I felt so strongly about with the brand and it's, everything's going to be like ones and zeros. And they're like, you're going to hate the bank. You're going to just hate all the bankers we're going to meet with. And they were right. As I met with bankers, they were all just like trying to make our business like other businesses. And I was like, no, 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 no. you're missing all the specialness, right? We ended up having the most amazing, um, relationship with the team at Guggenheim. Um, and they took us through a very competitive process with a great outcome. Uh, but you know, that was, I think I was lucky from that perspective. And obviously a great experience because now you got to see the last piece of like the full cycle of, uh, of doing a business. And now you're obviously looking or you've learned really at the initial, you know, phase of, of really doing it. So, so now let's, let's talk about like the next phase. So here in 2015, you finally make the decision to, to leave, you know, once the, the transaction has been closed and all of that stuff. And then you start seeing uh, to what is next and, and, and evaluating companies. So, so what was this process like? Yeah, so I it was very hard to leave backcountry, um, you know, but right. I had been there 11 years. I'd, you know, seen 20 million to 500 million and had a very successful process concluded with TSG buying the company. But I am, you know, I think not somebody that necessarily would be ideal to take the company to the next phase or be involved in the next phase of the business. Um, so, you know, it was painful decision, but, um, left backcountry and had an amazing person who'd worked for me, take the business over, who's still there. And then I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And, you know, it's funny. Cause I think as a CEO, like some of us feel like, I don't know, we have these moments where we're like, we're, what is a CEO? Like, you know, you feel, if you've been an operator and you've done, like you've been in the weeds and you've had a very specific role, um, and, and, and you're execution oriented, like I am, you have like this moment where you're like, what, what do I do? Like, you, know, you just feel like you're just not, um, I don't know, as useful as a CMO or a CTO or a CFO. It just sort of feels like this nebulous role. Um, you forget, I think briefly, you know, uh, that, that the CEO role is so important. It just feels sort of less specific. And I had that moment. I was like, Oh my God, I just, I wish I was, you know, not looking for now another CEO job, but inevitably that was what was coming at me. I looked at 40 different companies or like 44, I think it was in five months. Um, I should have just chilled out and relaxed when I left back country, but I was like panicked about who am I, what am I going to do next? And, um, I met, I knew the team at NEA and NEA said, look, we'd love for you to come and be at one of our companies. You're, you know, you think you're the right sort of, you have the right sort of disposition and energy for an early stage company. And so they introduced me to Mark 
at Jet and Gwyneth at Goop and, um, and uh, Tamara, um, who was Tamara Mellon, who uh, had previously founded Jimmy Choo and had left Jimmy Choo at a, let's see, about, I think, 2000, I think in 2011, after 20 years of building that into one of the most iconic luxury footwear brands in the world. And they said, look, Tamara wants to disrupt the luxury footwear industry. And the way she wants to disrupt it is going to require her to have a co-founder that understands technology and data and e-commerce. And they said, you know, so we think you should beat her. And I, I was in Park City at the time and I was like, oh, this is not going to be a good fit. I'm like, she's going to be so fancy and so fashion. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, been working in the outdoor industry. I flew to LA, met Tamara and um, was struck by how amazing she was. She had obviously a ton of experience in a category where I had none. And here she was describing a vision for disrupting a category she'd helped create, you know, 20 plus years ago. And I'm thinking to myself, that's really cool. And, and I also was aware that she'd made a lot of money with Jimmy Choo and she could have just sort of rode off into the sunset. Uh, but she didn't want to do that. She wanted to continue to design shoes and build the next big luxury footwear brand. And so a lot of it was logic and sort of me seeing the white space in direct-to-consumer and in the luxury category going direct-to-consumer and being digitally native, but it was also an emotional decision because I was like, I really like her. I think we could do this together. And so I picked up and moved my family to LA and we launched Tomorrow Mellon in October of 2016. Wow. What a, what a journey. And, and so then what happened? So you moved there with the family. You guys decide to launch this thing. What were the, um, the early days like? <laughs> so a combination of just so much fun and so scary. Uh, I, you know, Backcountry didn't raise money. And so we grew more slowly and we were always thinking about, you know, sort of increasing EBITDA margin alongside pursuing growth. And at Tamar Mellon, the, you know, goal was really just, you know, without being um, irresponsible from a unit economic perspective or cash perspective, grow fast. And so, uh, you know, I felt this, I think I really struggled at first on this idea of like, invest, invest, invest for growth. Um, having been, you know, as CEO at Backcountry, picking up you know, 20 basis points or 50 basis points of margin for EBITDA, you know, it was like, oh my God, I'm just supposed to spend money um, and not worry about profitability. So that was hard for me. Plus just, you know, it's not, it's not easy to um, create a market uh, and find customers when you don't have wholesale distribution. So as a direct-to-consumer business, you've disintermediated retail, so you don't have those eyeballs as a way to drive traffic and awareness. And so figuring out, you know, the unit economics around customer acquisition for a brand that nobody had heard of and figuring out the channels to drive that growth, it, it was hard. But I will say much, much, much more fun than... Uh, running a $500 million business um, like I was doing at Backcountry. It was just so fun to return to the, you know, to the, to the weeds, if you will, and be doing all those jobs that I, you know, sort of missed doing. Got it. So then I guess uh, here, what ended up being the business model? 
So the model is the way we think about, you know, the disruption or, um, you know, sort of unseating what we call the dusty incumbents of, uh, luxury, the luxury category in, in accessories is we look at disruption across four, across four categories. So one is we, because we don't build in wholesale margin, we're offering the same quality of shoes. So we make our shoes in Italian factories, the same Italian factories that Lanolo or Louboutin or Jimmy Choo or any of the big luxury brands manufacture in Italy, but we're delivering that product to the customer at about a half of the retail price because there's, there isn't the six X markup that you typically get um, in this category uh, because we don't, again, we don't build in uh, retailer margins. So there's a big, you know, sort of the best quality at a better price. Um, the second thing that we've done, uh, you know, differently is really innovate around sort of experience and service. So uh, with every shoe that you buy from Tamara Mellon, we offer something called Culver Concierge, which means you can send your shoes back to us and we repair them for two years, which is very anti-luxury. Um, but we believe, you know, great consumer brands take care of their customers beyond the transaction. Um, we've done some interesting things offline. And then I think finally, uh, we deliver product, um, weekly new product, uh, online, as opposed to working on the fashion calendar, which is season based and sort of with two big updates a year. Um, so those are sort of the business model innovations around, you know, price and newness from a product perspective and then experience. Because here, what were the biggest challenges? I mean, obviously you have the the logistics, the technology, the fashion components. So, so what, what were some of the biggest challenges to build this up? Yeah, I think the biggest surprise for me has been um, we had this great idea of, you know, dropping product weekly um, instead of, so typically what happens in fashion is the designers design the product 12 months before the customers sees it because the designers, the, the, the business, the brand has to sell that product into retail. They show it at fashion shows. So there's this long calendar. Um, and we, we didn't want to operate that way. You know, what we wanted to do is design as close as possible to the customer when the customer receives the product and for there to be no fatigue, um, in demand, uh, you know, that's, I think created in fashion companies when, when products shown on a, runway, you know, six months before the customer sees it. But at the time they see it, they're like, okay, I'm tired of this. So we, we, we wanted to shorten the supply chain essentially, um, from concept to customer, um, and then replenish very quickly into what actually worked. Well, um, probably not surprisingly, you know, Italian manufacturing is not a, set up for fast replenishment and speed. You know, it's a pretty, it's, it's beautiful, the manufacturing process, and it produces the best quality shoes in the world, I would say. But, um, you know, they're used to receiving big orders a few times a year from their brand partners. And so here we were launching product frequently, and we were having all of this demand that we tried to chase with call it a seven to nine week replenishment. And so we realized we'd launched a new customer facing model on an antiquated supply chain. And so that has been challenging, but it's also represented a big opportunity from an innovation perspective on the back end of the business, which I think in the end, you know, look, we're early days and it's not all done, but in the end, I think we'll create a much more, you know, a much more valuable business is sort of customer innovation paired with supply chain innovation. 
Got it. And in terms of um, capitalizing the business, how did you guys uh, uh, finance the business? So we're a Series C a company. We're, we've raised just under $90 million. Uh, so we've completed our Series C round in June of this year. Uh, we were down to, I think, probably $50,000 when we closed the round. <laughs> Which is sort of crazy, wow. right? I love um, uh, Tony Florence from NEA sits on the board of Tamar Mellon, and he's you know one of the best direct to consumer investors. And he said to me as I was like, "Oh my God, you know, are we going to be able to close this round?" He said, "Look, every great company almost runs out of money." at least once. And I was like, okay, that sort of makes me feel better. And then doesn't make me feel better. But, um, you know, uh, it was tough. I mean, it took, look, my lesson, it was, it always takes longer to raise money than you think you are going to have, no matter how great your business is, you are going to have many, 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 many no's. And you are going to have moments where you think your life is ending and you're looking at all your employees thinking, oh my God, I, I mean, am I going to be able to do it for this team? Um, but you know, uh, if you do have a good business and you have a great strategy, then, you know, you just have to keep, ha you just have to keep taking those meetings and, uh, pitching the business and, you know, it, it will, well, it, it can't say it will happen for you, but it happened for us. And, you know, it was very hard, the process, incredibly painful, but thank goodness we, you know, we closed around and we closed, closed around. We, we set out to raise 35 million and we closed 50. Nice. And, and I guess looking back, uh, at this specific round at the series C, what, what do you think you, you would do differently if you had to start that round over again? So, I, a couple things. One, I think I would have spent a lot more time on, you know, the story from the perspective of, I would have written it out. I would have written it out in like a narrative and then built the deck. Because I think what I think we do too often is we start building slides and then we're sort of trying to cobble together the story. And what I realized at the end of the process was that, you know, I'd say the first 10, I don't know if it was 10, five meetings that we had, I was figuring the story out as I was pitching. Like I had the slides and I had the high level sort of idea, but it didn't flow naturally. And going back to what I said earlier, like, I mean, I, I almost like broke one of my own rules, which was like, I should have just written it out. You, you could hide too easily behind bullet points. Um, and then the flow gets awkward. So I would have written a narrative and then built the slides to that narrative. The second thing that I realized was, um, and look, this is just, I think the reality of our category, most investors are not looking to invest in, you know, just a new fashion company or a new consumer brand. The investors that you're likely going to want to raise capital from want a data or a technology story, even if you're a consumer-facing brand or a fashion brand. And, you know, what you don't want to do is just make one up and have it be inauthentic to, like, what you're really <laughs> doing, right? That's not good. But, like, if you if you have the possibility of integrating that into your, your value creation story, then you should really focus on, on that and figuring that out. And so early days, our pitch was very much focused on the customer and the brand and the product. And that's all very important, but it was only until I gave equal weight to how we were using data 
and supply innovation, supply chain innovation married with the like brand and customer innovation and, and the customer experience innovation, did people start perking up? And I think that's because there, you know, a lot of the investors are just used to hearing about those types of companies. And so it makes more sense to them how value can be created. Um, so that was like the turning point for us. Um, and, you know, I probably could have had much better meetings early on if I'd had that balance at the get-go. Wow. Well, that's a powerful lessons there. And I'm sure that the people that are listening are going to get a, are going to get a lot of, a lot from it. So, so one of the things here that I, that I wanted to ask you is, you know, obviously on the, um, you know, what, how many employees do you have? Just uh, out of curiosity here, Joe. We are at sixty-five people. Right. Yeah, no, and, and this Far. this comes because of the of the question that I wanted to ask you is with your last company with Backcountry. Obviously, you know when you came in, you know you had to kind of like rebuild the team, and you saw what didn't work before, and then you were able to see what worked, and you know how to really you know put more muscle behind what worked. You know, especially when it comes to people. So when it came, you know, around to to really building this company and more from the ground up. What were you clear about, you know, on the culture that you wanted to create and then also on the mm. team that you wanted to surround yourself by? Yeah, that, uh, I am, um, you know, team and culture. There's one thing that's awesome about being the CEO is that you, you should and you must think about those, those you know, important parts of building a brand and a business. Um, and I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I feel like is um, sometimes a black box um, and hard to get better at, um, but so critical. And so I've been a, I've been very passionate about w what to do here at Tamar Mellon at, at Backcountry. You know, when I left, we were a little over a thousand employees. We had actually even bought and integrated in that rough period. I forgot about this. Three different companies: one in Portland, one in. Little Rock, Arkansas, one in Germany. And so I'd been through, you know, even three acquisitions and integrations that required, you know, that, that, that puts pressure on culture. Yeah. But one of the things about backcountry that was amazing was that there was this deep, deep, deep alignment between what the brand stood for and what the culture stood for. And as I said a minute ago, I feel like sometimes culture is this black box and there's no, I'm a very sort of linear structured thinker. And I always want like, tell me the framework. And um, gosh, like maybe eight years ago, I met someone named Edgar Papke who has a book called True Alignment. And he showed me the first ever culture framework. Um, and I've used it since then. And it essentially uh, says that, you know, what your, there should be an alignment between what your brand stands for and what your culture is. And, you know, essentially culture is the, the, if your, if your strategy is, you know, um, here's where we're headed, your culture is, is, you know, how we behave as we're headed there, right? It's the, it's the behaviors that are celebrated and encouraged and the behaviors that, you know, aren't. And so, um, you know, Edgar sort of says, look, if you, if your brand stands for something, then your culture needs to stand for essentially the same thing. And so at Backcountry, you know, we were all about, you know, creating community and this, like, as I explained earlier, this expert gearhead connections was about connections and community. And so the culture had to reflect that and the behaviors in the company, therefore that, reinforced, um, connection and community and also to lesser degree expertise, you know, really then would 
when the customer interacted with the brand, they'd experience the culture. And when people were living the culture at Backcountry, they were living the brand. So I brought that to Tamara Mellon, that thinking. And, um, you know, we are a brand that is building pride of association with our customers through shared values, which is very different than traditional luxury brands that build pride of association through shared status. And those values are anchored in women owning their voice, uh, women knowing their worth and owning their health. Uh, so pay equity, women's health and sort of overarching, you know, feminism and women's empowerment. And so the culture at Tamara Mellon, you know, lives those brand values. And so we have built, and I, I, you know, I think you would hear this from the 65 people that are here. We've built a culture that, you know, uh, is about everyone owning their voice is about, um, you know, everyone sort of knowing their worth and understanding how the business works from a financial perspective, understanding how to create an amazing career and reach their highest earning potential. And there's a big focus on health here, mental wellness and, you know, physical wellness. Um, and, and we feel like if, if, you know, if we live those values, um, then the customer, you know, when she experiences, when she interacts with our employees, it's like another reflection of the brand. Um, and so, you know, I often hear from our younger employees here, like, wow, it's weird how there's no like hierarchy and, you know, anyone can speak up and say anything and, you know, voice their opinion or disagree with anybody on the team. And I said, well, yeah, you know, we can't ask our customers to love the brand because we're fighting for women to own their voice and then not let our employees you know, own their voice. And look, I mean, at the end of the day, it creates a better business because, you know, everybody here is contributing their intellectual, like, you know, thoughts and, and capacity to the, to the conversation. That's amazing. That's amazing, Jill. And one of the questions that I always ask uh, here, are the guests that come on the show is knowing what you know now, I mean, here you are, you've been, you know, added on every single position on every single role, a CEO of a a thousand employees now, a CEO of, uh, you know, a company that, you know, is right now in the hyper growth, 65. So if you had the opportunity to go back in time and maybe to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Jill, even though that younger Jill may not have listened, but let's say, you know, let's say you actually listen when you were, you know, speaking to your younger self and, and you had the opportunity to give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why knowing what you know now? Hmm. I think, I, I mean, I, it would be one of two things. So it, it would either be, um, you know, some sort of advice to like, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but, um, to prioritize, um, you know, exercise essentially, <laughs> because I think that, you know, I am my best when I am getting outside and clearing my mind and coming into work, you know, I, I come in with more energy, even though I already have a lot of energy, I come in with even more energy and more clarity of thinking when I make time for myself. And in my darkest moments, I retreat. Um, and I just, I like work even harder. And I think actually it's like less effective. And so I would almost say to myself, there's one thing you can do. It's like every day block out, you know, 30, 60 minutes and sweat. So that would be one. Um, and then I think I, cause I have to have two. The second would be, I just have to go back to the, like the writing thing. I'd say, 
start writing down what you think before you present your ideas, because it will, it will make your presentation of information more thoughtful. And I use that word a lot here at Tormel. And I think people are like, but I always look for thoughtfulness. Like how deeply have you thought about this? And, um, I am, you know, the one thing I think that works again against me is I want to, I'm very impatient, (laughs) but sometimes (laughs) the thing to do is slow down and think more. So I would tell myself to slow down, think, write it out. Got it. After that workout. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's very, very profound, Jill. You know, right after this, I'm going to go, I'm hit the gym. So <laughs> you definitely inspired Excellent. me. Good stuff. So Jill, for the, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I'm Jill at Tamara Mellon. Amazing. And any social media handle, any Twitter or LinkedIn activity? Uh, <laughs> not, 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 no, not really. I mean, I'm there on Instagram, but um, yeah, no. <laughs> I, no, you just email me or call me. Uh, All right. Fantastic. Well, Jill, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you, really. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate um, being here and, and sharing my story. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.